All right. Okay, so let's get started. Let's pray, and uh, we will begin. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for the redemption that we have in your Son. Thank you for his grace. Lord, thank you for uniting us to him. Lord, we're so grateful today, Lord, with um, uh, so much of the world in chaos right now. Um, we're thankful for a rock. We're grateful that we have a refuge, that we have uh, safety from the storm. And that, Lord, um, we can be fully confident, Lord, that regardless of the fact that the form of this world is passing away, Lord, that we will endure forever. And uh, we're just grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray you reveal yourself to us as we look at your word now. We pray that you would give us understanding and clarity and give us the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we are talking about uh, the doctrine of miracles today. And um, I guess the kind of the order uh, that we have been going in is looking at creation. We talked about creation in general. We looked a little bit about the creation of man. I'm going to return um, uh, probably in a few weeks to talk about God's relationship to man. So we'll talk about things like uh, the covenants and how God relates to man and things like that. Um, but now that we've kind of established the creation itself, we also went into the spiritual world. And so we talked about man comprised of, uh, of a soul, uh, the fact that man has this you know, metaphysical aspect of his being. You know, we talked about the fact that we live in a world that is spiritual, a world of angelic and demonic beings. We talked about Satan, right? Everything you ever wanted to know about Satan, but we're afraid to ask. You know, we talked a little bit about that. And uh, so miracles and the providence of God is really what is next. So the fact that we live in a spiritual world continues with the idea that we live also in a world uh, of miracles. And uh, miracles are very important because, like we said, you know, part of the Christian worldview is that unlike other worldviews, which are essentially non-spiritual, non-supernatural, or anti-supernatural, right? Miracles is an issue that is right at the very heart and center of the controversy of, of, of worldviews. You know, whether or not you have a materialistic worldview that says things like miracles are not allowed because in a materialist worldview, we live in a closed system in a universe that doesn't allow external forces to intrude like God or divine things or spiritual forces. And this is what comprises many people's thinking uh, in the world. A lot of people think they look at miracles as you know, uh, something that is laughable about the Christian, something that is, you know, um, something that just makes uh, the claims of Christianity too fantastic to believe. And uh, even some theologians have uh, gone astray on the issue of miracles. And, and that has ultimately led people down a very dark path theologically. And there was one individual in particular, his name was... Rudolf Boltmann. 
and this is important to talk about. And John said, ooh, <laughs> because John knows who Rudolf Boltmann is, right? Who is Rudolf Boltmann? John, how could you, how could you describe, what do you know of him, the little that you do? You know it's bad. Yeah, I know it's bad. He's an anti-supernaturalist, and all the TS professors said, don't read it. That's all I know. Right. Right. And sadly, if you read anything of any good scholarship today, like most of my books, you know, commentaries and exegetical things, you know, they always interact with Boltmann, you know. Rudolf Boltmann was basically a 19th century German liberal, higher criticism. They, they, they looked at the Bible from a very existentialist, from a very anti-supernaturalist, from a very materialistic, evolutionary perspective. And uh, Rudolf Boltmann was very famous for... Uh, a word that he developed called demythology. So his aim was to demythologize the Bible. To demythologize the Bible. Well, what does that word imply? What do you think that implies? Huh? That it's a myth. It implies that there that the Bible it consists of myths or contains mythological thought yeah it's just uh it's not um so it's attacking the literalism of certain events in scripture the problem with rudolf boltmann is that he saw the miracles of the bible he saw jesus walking on water he saw the feeding of the five thousand he saw accounts where people were raised from the dead as metaphor too fantastic to believe that that happened in the real world because in our scientific age, in our modern era, people don't raise from the dead. You know, we, we have medicine and medical, you know, we have ways to go around that. You know what I mean? So he, he, he had naturalistic, a naturalistic explanation for all of those things. The problem with Boltmann is that his process of demythologizing the Bible went so far as to denying the resurrection of Christ. So that was a really, obviously that was where... <clears throat> Boltmann's entire worldview unraveled, you know. So miracles is very important because some would say Boltmann was being very consistent because if you demythologize this miracle, then you have to apply that to all miracles, including the very resurrection of Christ himself. And sadly, today, you go get an education at DTS or some of these higher institutes of learning, you will read Boltmann. A lot of professors will tell you not to read them, but then they send you off into the libraries and into the theological journals and into the exegetical reviews, and there is Boltmann at every turn, you know, because he was very smart. Um, I, have a, um, I have a dictionary set. Many of you maybe have heard of it. It's by uh, Kittle. Kittle is a basically like a, it's like a giant dictionary of every Greek word in the Bible and more, okay? And it's exhaustive. It's, what, 10 volumes and Boltmann is a contributor. He's in there, you know? He's in there because he was very, very, very smart. And so that just shows you being smart doesn't mean that you're saved, you know? Being smart doesn't automatically result in salvation. You know, you can be very smart and you can use your intellectual powers to, you know, go in the completely, you know, totally wrong direction in your faith. So. That's just a little bit why it's important, I guess, to, to talk about miracles. Let me give you a definition 
of miracles, and this is um, this is Grudem's uh, definition. He says, and then I want to interact with it a little bit. He says, a miracle is a less common kind of activity in which God arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. And so we would not disagree with that definition of miracles. I think that is right. If there's one thing I would add to to uh, uh, Grudem's definition here is when he says it is a less than common kind of activity and then I would add the word in the physical world. So I would rephrase it like this. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in the physical world which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Um, the reason why is because uh, another a theologian, uh, namely Herman Bavink, has pointed out something very, very interesting about miracles, and that is that, you know, a lot of times we think of a miracle as transgressing the laws of nature, right? As if somehow God's natural laws have been suspended in order for a miracle to take place, right? But what Bavink points out is that that is true. However, miracles, in a sense, have their own law. They have their, their own nature to them. They, are, they follow a certain course that God has also ordained for them. You see what I'm saying? I like it only because it gives God total control at all times, even of a miracle. So it's almost like what Bavink is saying is that from God's side of things, miracles operate in accordance to their own nature, to the nature of a miracle, which I thought was really interesting. This is not the same as Augustine. Augustine, a long time ago, is famous for saying that a miracle is only miraculous to us because we don't understand enough of the natural world. That if we, and due to the noetic effects of sin, because of our, our minds are so tainted by sin, we don't have an exhaustive knowledge of the way the universe and the world runs. Therefore, to us it is a miracle, but really it can be explained in naturalistic ways. I did, you know, obviously a lot of theologians are not comfortable with that, you know, in, including Burkhoff, who says that that is an untenable position, and I think that's right. Yes, sir? So would you say that things that can be explained by natural law would not be a miracle by definition? No. Uh, the reason why, well, <clears throat> boy, it, it, there is a, this is kind of a really, you know, debated point. The point of contact, you know, in the sense of, you know, there is a, there is a, a miracle of a sort that sort of rises above any sort of naturalistic explanation. It is, a, it is just pure su supernaturalism, okay? But then there are other miracles, if you would, that use, I don't even know how to describe this in a chart so much, but that use naturalistic causes, let's go like this, right? They use naturalistic causes in order to accomplish the miracle. So God can use secondary causes to accomplish a miracle. God can, through his providence, move the heart of a king in such a way, right, that it will inevitably result in the miraculous salvation of his people, right? 
God can use doctors in such a way, right, that beyond all hope and beyond all probability, you're healed. And that could be a miracle. Follow-up question? Um, would you make a distinction between a miracle and just God's providence? Yes. Mm-hmm. In, in one sense where it's... it's Everything natural, is God's providence in one sense. Right. In one sense, something is like natural, natural through natural means that God orchestrated and is a low probability, but yet he still makes it happen. You know, maybe in the case with a doctor... Right. Uh, that that would be providence, whereas somebody who's dead and becomes alive again right. the miracle because that's right. That's completely supernatural. Correct. Uh, or, or are we just kind of splitting hairs there? I mean, no, no, no. I think that's right. I think you know, a resurrection or something like that would be a complete, direct, divine act of supernatural, you know, maybe, activity. Maybe cancer goes away and there's just no explanation because right. But even then, that's what I'm saying, you know, like uh, Burkhoff talks about this overlap at this specific point. Because it is God who sort of moves the heart of the king, <laughs> right, to get him to pass the, the, the legislation to ultimately deliver his people. But there still is this, this strictly divine act by God, you know that then results in secondary causes that ultimately fulfill the, to- the, the miracle as we would see it in totality, you know, so. Yes, sir. Last, last follow-up. <laughs> um, do you think that maybe miracle, the word miracle is used too much today for things that maybe shouldn't be called a miracle in the definition that we're using, like maybe People have a good heart and when they're using the word, but, you know, like, say the birth of a child, we'll say, well, that's a miracle from God, you know, because the child is born, but, uh-huh. you know, millions of children are born every day, so it's, it's not an unusual thing that happens, as precious as it is. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a good point, Chris, because if you look in Scripture and you just survey all of the relevant passages where a miracle, the word miracle is used, it is absolutely distinguished from other normative patterns of, of, of things. You see what I'm saying? I mean, in, in one sense, I guess there's kind of like a generic or general sense in which everything in life is a miracle in that we live in a supernatural world where God is sustaining all things by the word of his power. And to a naturalist or a materialist, he would see that this is a miraculous world that we live in. Supernatural. So that, in a sense, has a miraculous power, but it is, or nature, but that does not mean that, as you said, some things you know, that are basically within the providence of God, running their course in their natural, you know, the natural way that he's ordained things to be, right, that does not qualify them as miracles, strictly speaking. So, yes, I don't think we should call the birth of a child a biblical miracle, okay? It's become sort of an idiom today, but I don't think it's theologically appropriate. Yes, sir. Um, birth uh, Sarah and gave a child at a late age in life, would that one satisfy as a miracle? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that went contrary to everything, you know, that, that natural man is capable of doing on his own, and it was prophetic. That's another reason why it was totally prophetic in nature, and therefore, I think it classifies as a miracle, the birth of Isaac. Yes, absolutely. Anything else? No? 
Okay. Um, yeah, right. This is this is good stuff. It provokes a lot of interesting thoughts, you know, that I think we need to have right thoughts about. But so the first miracle was what? <laughs> Just enough time to erase my stuff up here. Give you guys to, a little time to think. Yeah, uh, so creation is the first miracle, and it says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all of their host. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, obviously speaks of the fact that God broke in from his realm into our realm, from his being into, you know, into that which was not, which had no being, so that he created ex cathedra out of nothing, created through Jesus Christ and created all things. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Now, you know, as far as the debate, let's say, of, you know, this, this you know, creation coming about by naturalistic explanations, evolutionary explanations, you know, the, the, and I love the way that God has designed it this way because, you know, what, what the evolutionary person is going to think is, is, well, you know, it's, you know, uh, creation, you know, cannot be, or they would want proof. You know, what proof do you have that God created the world? See, the difficulty for us in that sense is that we cannot provide any scientific evidence that shows you that God created the world. Why? Because it was supernatural. It's not, it's not privy to evidence. In what way? I can't give you evidence of a non-material God and the things that he does in the realm before the universe exists. I can't give you evidence of that because it doesn't exist in the physical world. Okay, you well, see, see what I'm chasing here? But well, I mean... How can we not provide evidence of creation? It's impossible. Why? Can't, can't we tell them, look, look at the creation. The air you breathe. There it is. What about the air? <laughs> look, look at the air you breathe. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Look at yeah. Feel the air that you breathe. That's an effect. Correct. That's an effect. So what am I getting at? You, you want to get to the cause. Or we want to get to the creation itself, okay. right? So what is it about creation that we cannot provide them with? Oh, it was a one-time event. Correct. We cannot repeat the creation event. It is not an observable, testable, repeatable hypothesis that we can observe and put it in a lab and see how it's done. It is a one for all, one time, you know, it's a distinct particular event that took place that can never be repeated. And therefore we can never show people this is how it happens, right? So it has to be taken, creation has to be taken on the authority of the word of God. That's what I like about it, is that it's not, you know, uh, all these creation ministries, and I like a lot of them, right? <laughs> it's not that, as you know, if we describe the effect long enough, then that will logically lead you to the act, it's, to the creation itself, right? We can never get from, the, from there to there. I just can't. Man can't reason himself to that point, right? We have to take it on faith, faith in the Word of God, which, of course, Hebrews tells us that our faith is not just blind, it's not a blind faith, right? It's the conviction of the certainty of the things that we know to be true for sure on the basis of the conviction that God gives us, you know, which is based ultimately on his word. So how do we know uh, creation is the first miracle? Because of revelation. 
That's how we know anything, is because of revelation. Question? I know your I know your wheels are spinning. Well, I I, I was I was maybe thinking about contesting. And why are you sitting idea. over there? That's kind of <laughs> <laughs> because it's easier for me to look at the board. Okay, all right. Uh, but um, cannot we test that 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 scenario with a different set of parameters? For example, for example, you said we cannot. Uh, go back to creation and make a new create you know to, to go through that but can we not take that principle about creation and apply it to different circumstances for for instance birth yeah right there has to be a creating order there in order to create that new manifestation if you will cannot we logically say that that is a legitimate uh, reproduction of it, not simply, not, not because it's you could do it over and over again. Sure. But because uh, the effect, which is having the baby, is similar to the effect of having this world. Yeah, I mean, to us as Christians, that that analogy makes sense. But to the materialist, you know, I would say it doesn't make sense. Sure. Because just because somebody, just because we can produce a child. That cannot possibly explain the origin of the universe. And I was going to say, there's a, when, you, when, you're, when, a, when a child's created, there's already pre-existing material. Conditions. Yeah, there's, yeah. Some, there's something before yeah. the child. Correct. So that, you, that's what I'm getting at. Okay, yeah. but there's, there's nothing but God before the creation. Correct. Did but I, I would say it? that that makes sense. Then I'm, I'm missing the analogy. <laughs> because, mm. because it sounds like what's being said is that that cannot be a legitimate argument for an unbeliever because we we cannot reproduce the creation event creation event yeah but what i'm saying is that they logically seem to be parallel with one another <laughs> in the in the same argument that in order for something to be created there must be something before it to make that happen yeah so causation correct right. the ontological so, argument. right so yes. the causation the ontological argument yes. that's right but the problem with that again is that it doesn't it doesn't tell you you don't have how can you possibly know for certain what the primary cause was right. sure. all you can say is you can explain what is but you cannot from there therefore know for certain what was you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I would say, no, on the basis of that, you, you can't, you know, furthermore, I mean, Scripture says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were created. So no possible human analogy, right, will re reproduce the conditions of creation. Okay. So, I mean, that's a good question. It's good. It's good because we can, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, in a sense, what you're saying, Robert, makes sense to us as Christians, right? That because we're creating the image of God, we're like God in many ways, we are capable of creating life on a much lower level, right? right? We're, we're capable of reproduction and those things. And that is a small metaphor, small analogy to our God, the creator, right? So, but it does not, I would not base my belief in the miracle of creation on the basis of observable events in the created order. So the infinite cannot get you, or to the finite cannot get you to the infinite. Yeah. So, any other questions along those lines? 
That's great. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, okay. Uh, the other issue that I wanted to tackle is, well, what is the purpose of miracles? Uh, why do miracles exist in the Bible? What is the purpose of a miracle? <laughs> Validation of what? The supernatural of God. So God performs a miracle to show you that he's able to do miracles? No. Um, validation of his message and purpose. Okay. So validation of his message, right? What message is that? The gospel. Okay. So miracles serve an evangelical purpose, right? And I would say further than that, I mean, let's talk about the gospel, right? So when, when you said that, what did you have in mind? It validates the gospel. So what scenario were you thinking of? I'm thinking of Jesus Christ claiming that he is one with the Father, being God, and that only God can do certain things that people yeah. were recognizing, and he was doing those very things that God, only God can do. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So were there miracles before Jesus Christ? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what purpose did they serve? Yes, sir. I like Grudem's definition to bring about awe and wonder of God. The glory of God. And to, to arouse our, our, just our, our, basically our awe and, and to glorify God. I agree with that, but I would say in terms of what is the purpose, you know, um, biblically, like biblically, what is the purpose? I would say if you stop at the idea that God did this in order to excite awe and wonder, I don't think that is um, going to be as helpful or meaningful as what I think the Bible really is teaching miracles are for. So prior to authenticating the message of Jesus, because that's kind of a, you know, that's, that's usually the immediate example we go to, to, to for validation, uh, what purpose did miracles serve? <laughs> what the, what the prophets, you know what I mean? I, I don't believe they were just to impress people. Right, no. With the right? prophets, they validated that they were a prophet. Okay. That was one of the, it was that and being able to predict the future and have it come true. So okay. That was part of the validation. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like not really so much a wrong answer here, but I'm trying to get you guys to see, okay, so it's got a prophetic power. It validated the message of Jesus. You know, you're looking at all of this and it's a kind of a, Part of a bigger um, picture. I would say, kind of going in line with uh, you know, case in point with what he was saying, be like First Kings thirteen and Jeroboam and the altar and the man of God going and uh, proclaiming the word of the Lord against the, the altar and mm -hmm. it rending and the ashes coming out, Jeroboam hands drying up, all these things validating the message of the of the prophets. Of the Good. Prophet. Good. Yeah. Amen. Amen. What about? The idea of fearing the Lord. Absolutely. I mean, that that seems like the number, because we yeah. are outside of that right. supernatural, and to yeah. know that God is sovereign uh, over everything, that should put fear into us, that he has ultimate control over everything natural and supernatural. Right, and so what you're talking about is what theologians call an epiphanic effect of a miracle. Fear-inspiring. You see it. And you're gripped with fear, right? You see it with you see it with Peter. Jesus tells him, "Cast your nets on the other side." Right? He pulls in this great, you know, this great, you know, catch of fish, and he's seized with fear, right? And that's what a miracle produces. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Also, I'm thinking that maybe the miracles that were mostly performed that happened in the Old Testament, like a, a proclamation of things to come, Jesus on every page, Christ coming, reminding God's people the Old Testament things. Yeah. Yeah. Is what I have planned for you. Yeah, I actually think Mike is closest to what I was wanting to, to, to get at. Not that any of the answers are wrong, but I think that above all, above all, above all, miracles have a redemptive purpose. Redemptive purpose. You remember that everything that God is doing is along this redemptive continuum of the acts of history that he is accomplishing. And so at pivotal times, at pivotal, now I want you to think, not of an isolated individual, uh, maybe miracle, I want you to think of the miraculous, pivotal moments in redemptive history where major miracles have transpired. And I want you to tell me which ones you can think of. Okay, so, okay, so, this is not going to be a timeline. <laughs> I just realized if I put this here and then, you know, somebody goes back before that, then we're in trouble. So, chronology aside, yes, sir. Moses. What about Moses? More, be more specific. All the, all the signs. Because that answer wouldn't cut it on Jeopardy, so you got to get really more. Leading up to the Passover. What's that? Leading to the Passover. Uh, his signs to Pharaoh, the plague. Okay, all right, the okay. Corn, so the blood, the snake. <laughs> right, so the plagues. And there's more than that, right? Yes, ma'am. I would say the fall of Jericho. The fall of Jericho, okay, so Jericho, right? Because that, And that's very important because that has a lot of significance for... Uh, don't fault me for that, but, uh, you know, that has a lot of significance for the land and the conquest and all of that, so that's important. Anybody else? Anything else? I think, even, you know, when Moses saw the burning bush, it was like that was what brought him to God. To, okay, so, to right, so the ministry of Moses, right, back to, back to Moshe. Are you looking for miracles before the cross? Any, or, yes. Or after the cross? Leading up to the cross, yeah. right. Elijah. Elijah. Uh, yeah. How about... How about how about how about the flood? That was a pretty. Someone said Noah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The flood. Okay. How about the? Okay, Exodus, right? Because yes, the plagues, but also also the Red Sea, right? Parting. So what I'm trying to show you is that these incredible, uh, you know, incredible, you know, um, you know. Just you know, naturally defying miracles, these cataclysmic, monumental miracles, all had a major role to play in redemptive history, and they substantiated what God is doing redemptively in the world and for His people. It wasn't just to say, miracle, Elijah's a prophet, right? But what does Elijah's prophethood have to do with the overall prophetic scheme of God? That's what's important. You see, yes, sir. Don't we need to distinguish here between a miracle that God does exclusively and a miracle that God does through a person? Sure. Because there's, I mean, creation was an event, nobody was involved. Yeah. But Noah, Joshua, Moses, Elisha, Elisha, Christ and the apostles, those are all miracles that were done through people. Right. And... That's true. And I just want to make, are we... Yeah, I think that, but I think they all, whether, you know what I mean, like... 
the parting of the Red Sea, I mean, only God did that. I mean, Moses did not really, in a sense, he didn't, you know. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything other than was the representative, you know what I mean? And, but, uh, I mean, I guess in one sense we could say every miracle after creation has some sort of human agency involved, Mm -hmm. whether it's just representative, right? Uh, Noah, you know, obviously involved in the flood, you know, all of that. To the degree that they are involved, that might differ, But there's still some form of human agency involved. But the more important part is, again, that they validate redemptive history itself. Um, Maybe I can read a scripture for us out of uh, uh, a quote from Burkhoff. He says this, listen to this. It may be assumed that the miracles of scripture were not performed arbitrarily. That's very important. But with a definite purpose. They are not mere wonders, exhibits of power destined to excite amazement, but have revelational significance. The entrance of sin into the world makes the supernatural intervention of God in the course of events necessary for the destruction of sin and for the renewal of creation. That's great. That's great. Oh, I love Burkhoff. You guys don't have Burkhoff. You've got to get Burkhoff. You know? Yes, sir. Maybe I'll open the door here. Um, but, you know. Open the door? <laughs> Last night, uh, you know, sharing the gospel with uh, Montana and uh, Montana's goes, a guy. That guy. Yeah. Okay. I was sitting with. And, uh, he goes to say, "Hey, you know, goes in this mystic experience, and why aren't you healing? Why aren't you performing miracles? You know, and the charismatics will quote, you know, Mark um, sixteen. You know, these signs will come uh, follow those who believe. You know, yeah. casting out the demons and et cetera, et cetera. So, how would you go into that to someone? Yeah, well, that gets into my final point, (laughs) which is good, you know. So, I mean, scores and scores of of scriptures that can be used to show that validation, whoever brought that up, is absolutely right. God uses miracles to validate the ministry of Jesus, to validate the preaching of the apostles, and he does that for you know, to authenticate the gospel. I mean, there's no question about that. You know what I mean? But then comes the question of the continuity of miracles today. And should we expect miracles? Should we seek after miracles? Should we, uh, should we expect for somebody in the church to be extraordinarily gifted to perform miracles? Things like that. So, again, I said this at pretty much at the outset of our time in systematic theology when I laid my cards out for all of you to see. Um, that I have, you know, I've pretty much, I've come more into a partial cessationist position now where I do not believe that there are miracle workers in the church today. That uh, I don't agree with John Piper. John Piper would say something like this. He would say the reason that someone in your church that is sick or something, the reason that they are, I'm paraphrasing, but it's online. He says something like, the reason they're probably sick is because you don't have the right person praying for them. And so that is a charismatic, obviously, because he's charismatic. That's kind of a theology that undergirds what he's saying there. And so to me, I mean, that to me is problematic on a whole, you know, spectrum of, re- you know, there's all kinds of problems with that statement, you know. Um, now, if we were back in First Corinthians, you know, um, where it does seem that in the early church there were people walking around who had the gift of miracles, then maybe John Piper's right. But me personally, I mean, after you know years of being in the church and years of being in charismatic activity myself, 
You know, I can genuinely say that I've never met a single person who has the gift of healing or of miracles or anything like that. What, yes, sir. What about a, about Timothy when he had his stomach ailments? He told him, yeah. drink, he told him drink wine, not exactly. get, get a, you know, Joe yeah. to pray for you. That's a perfect point, you know. I mean, here's apostolic wisdom. And Paul doesn't have the apostolic wisdom to say, Timothy, look for the, the healer in your church so that you can be healed. <laughs> no, he said... Drink a little wine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yes, like yes, sir. What about like, it says so in the scriptures, it says that if there's one sick among you, don't call the elders of the church. Right. Right. And there'll be sins. Yeah. Yeah, James chapter 5. So in James, you know, what he's saying there, I think, is the spirit of what we should pursue today in form of miracles and healings and things like that, is that uh, absolutely I believe in, believe in miracles today. Absolutely I believe that God can heal today if he so wills. Um, I've seen God heal through prayer. I've seen God not heal, you know. I remember Walter Martin. One time I was listening to Walter Martin, and he said, you know, I've Visited people in the hospital for years. And I've prayed for people in the hospital, and they've been healed. I've prayed for people in the hospital, and they died. <laughs> so it's not, you know, the, it's not our fault, you know what I mean, that we don't have the gift of healing or something like that. It's that, you know, according to James, the spirit now of healing is much more of saying, look, we pray, we commit the person to the Lord, we pray in faith, and if God wants to heal the sick, he will. You know what I mean? But I don't see James either going around and saying, look for the healer in your church. Look for the person that falls in that category of healing. Have them come so they can heal the person. Question? No? Well, I thought somebody wrote, raised their hand. So it is, you know, obviously it's, a, it's obviously a very controversial thing. I mean, Scripture does tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, that uh, one of the negative signs of the Jews is that they seek after a sign. You know what I mean? They seek signs. And how how descriptive is that of our own culture today? And I'm talking about church culture, you know, wanting to see signs. And, of course, that's where the faith healers make all their money is, is they, they, they prey on people's natural disposition to want to see something miraculous, right? And then they fabricate all of these false miracles to try to substantiate that type of thing, you know. So when a person, K-Dub, comes up to you and says, y'all should be doing miracles healing you know be moving out in power you know i would tell that person oh can you perform miracles oh absolutely then why aren't you at the children's hospital and walking down the cancer ward and healing those poor little children in there what are you doing out here partying with everybody you know what i mean or whatever they're doing i don't know party <laughs> i just threw all that on them you know? you know what i'm saying what are you doing just out here chilling out i mean you should be in the children's hospital you really care for people there's plenty of places you can go for suffering and death and dying and sickness. Then that's that's where their theology ends up uh, catching themselves in a net because they end up saying, "Well, if it doesn't work, then they didn't have enough faith. They didn't believe right, right. in it." Well, yeah. then you really don't have the power right. of that because it, it, by that definition, your power must override whatever that other person is going through, and. Um, it, it, it just becomes very sticky, it seems, it does. in that area. And they have an escape route as soon as you challenge them in that. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I, you know, we have some friends that um, my wife's known for a really long time. We've tried to stay real cordial with them, but they're heavily, heavily word of faith. 
And when her friend, the, uh, it's a husband and wife, and when the husband, his mother was dying, he was sending us emails about what was going on. And he kept repeating that she had let Satan get a foothold and that basically because of her unbelief, her cancer is not going away and finally died. And basically he, she died with him blaming her. <laughs> the saying she didn't have enough faith. She gave in to the devil and his lies and therefore she was not healthy, wealthy and prosperous. It's like, I mean, at what level do you just say, you're insane? You know, so when we all come to die, I mean, we just all lack faith. What are you talking about? You know, anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> Can you turn to Hebrews chapter two? We'll end there. Hebrews chapter, I can't believe I'm turning to a NIV Bible up here. I forgot my Bible at home, so don't, I know that sounds horrible, and it is. I'm trying not to condemn myself, but I did forget my Bible at home, rushing out of the house because I'm, you know, I'm taking my laptop, my coat, you know. Are you going to preach from the NIV? No, I'm not. I'll borrow your Bible before I do. I'll use your ESV before I do that. <laughs> uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Somebody want to read this for me? Uh, Felix, you want to read three, and, 3 to 4? Verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4? Yeah, chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, please. The older women... No, no, Hebrews. Hebrews, here we go. 3 to 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it, heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So I was finding myself um, disagreeing with Wayne Grudem here. If you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he point. this is a... This is a text that cessationists are going to use to substantiate the claim that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders were already as early on in the middle 60s or whenever this was written, they were already looking at charismatic phenomenon as a past event or a past phenomenon. They were pointing back to a time when this was taking place. And so Grudem is saying, you know, uh, that, 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 that this doesn't, you know, apply to that whatsoever. You know, he's basically making the argument that um, if you say that this is uh, saying that miracles, uh, you know, can no longer take place, which is already positioning the argument, I think, in an improper fashion, because that's not what cessationists are saying at all, okay? And he's saying, if you believe that, well, then you also believe that all of the gifts have ceased, and who's going to believe in that? You know, so I thought the argument was poor, because I do think that it is very, very clear here that you have the author of, of, the, of Hebrews, who I don't think, oh boy, I better be careful what I say here, <laughs> authorship of Hebrews. I, 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 don't, I don't think it was an apostle, okay? I don't think, I might be wrong. Um, because, you know, if it was somebody that close, he wouldn't have talked about the apostolic period of time as something he's removed from, but something he was in and took part in, okay? Um, even the Apostle Paul, okay, was one of those that heard directly from Jesus himself. 
And so I would say that this is probably not an apostle looking back at, you see that where it says there in verse 3, it was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. And so I personally believe that the message that with the word, and that goes back to verse 1, the word, or verse 2, the word that was spoken through angels and then ultimately trickles down to verse 3, spoken through the Lord, is talking about Christ, and then it says, and was confirmed to us by those who heard, that is speaking of Jesus' immediate audience, not the unbelievers who rejected him, but the apostles who followed him, right? So that's talking, I believe, I, I just think the plain reading of that, you would have to come to the conclusion. He's talking about the apostles, you know, who heard. It says, God also testifying with them. You see that? With them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So I think on a very simple level there, it is sort of pointing back to a period of time where signs and wonders were prevalent among a group of people that heard directly from Christ and God confirmed the things that they were preaching. So now you can ask anything you want. Well, it, it would seem sometimes in Scripture where it says, you know, be careful of who is in your audience when performing certain gifts uh, if you're in the church, mm -hmm. uh, it would seem that God would apply that own logic as culture maybe changes mm. to where people become, I guess, more distant from that type of a mindset and they would have almost a little bit more of a uh, standoffish uh, uh, understanding of a miracle done through a, per you know, a person. I don't know, it's just a thought. I'd have to know what your which maybe which verse or what context exactly you know you're referring to there, but because I'm not sure what I'm not sure what verse you're referring to in terms of that. Oh no, I would distancing or you know well, no, being careful not to for the cessationist you know point of view of where people are not the mediums of these gifts. It's strictly by the Lord uh, who who does the healing or whatever it may be. It may seem as if that as time has progressed from the charismatic era uh -huh. of, of when, when gifts and, and healings and all this stuff was going on, as time went by, it seems as if maybe people have gotten further away from, uh, I guess, being not so shunned by that, uh, where, where you know, we're so far ahead in history now from the times when that was very prevalent, oh, especially yeah. in that era, right. uh, where where it wasn't as freakish, if you will, okay. uh, to to see something like that, especially if most of culture was uh, believing in God or in a God that they believed in supernatural more so than they do in today's culture. Yeah. Well, I think biblical times. So what you're asking is more of a is more of a background question. Correct. The sociology, the the, yeah. the you know the cultural background of a of a of a time period like the apostolic time period, which was if you follow the Book of Acts. I mean, even the the, the pagans, the Romans, the Greeks. You know, uh, even they had you know a a belief in the supernatural. You know, there was um, Simon the sorcerer. You know, they there was definitely supernatural phenomenon. 
you know, in, in the first century that took place, but there is today too, you know, I mean, go to Africa, you know, I mean, it's just that simple. You know, Christians tend to believe the kingdom of God is in America, <laughs> but you step foot outside of America, you go to Africa, you go to South America, you go to, you know what I mean? And people have deeply, deep beliefs in the supernatural. They're not right, right? A lot of times they're voodoo and they're, and their paganism and things like that, but they're just much more open to supernatural things where, yes, the even biblical supernaturalism is not that big of a shock, you know, so. Um, Emilio, yes, ma'am. Even Jesus said, you know, on that day, many will come to me, mm-hmm. you know, saying, didn't I perform, you know, cast out demons? That's right. You know, so, I mean, even the non-believing have that uh, yeah. power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Or at least appear to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, lots of stuff. I know there's so many loose ends to tie up on this whole issue, but we'll keep going. But let's pray. That's um, we're out of time, so we'll come back to a lot of these things in the future. Let's let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for uh, the fact that uh, Lord, you are not an arbitrary God. Thank you that even the miracles and the incredible works of redemptive history that you performed they serve a greater purpose lord they serve all of your purposes that you ultimately are working out in christ jesus so we thank you for them god we pray that you'd continue to bless our sunday school and our church father we pray that you would use us lord in these in these difficult times that we're living in in this world that you would make us uh, a light that shines brightly the word of god and the, the truth of your of your word And to help us, Lord, to be good witnesses to you, Father. Give us a zeal and a passion for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.